Today's reading comes from the book of Judges, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. And this reading comes in the story of Israel after Moses had led the people out of Egypt by God's delivering hand. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then after Moses died, the people entered the promised land. And under the leadership of Moses' follower Joshua, they had begun to conquer the peoples who were there. But now we are at the end of Joshua's life, and the text says this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the Israelites all went to their own inheritances to take possession of the land. The people worshipped the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So they buried him within the bounds of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Moreover, that whole generation was gathered to their ancestors. And another generation grew up after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good morning, Highland. My name is Shane Hughes, and I am one of the ministers here, and we are going through this series called Rolodex. It's the the people that you want to have, the kind of people that you want to have if you're going to make a phone call, if you need somebody around you. And uh, when we began this series, planning this series, uh, we made this little bookmark, and we had no idea that we would have no easy way to distribute that bookmark to you for uh, six or eight weeks, Uh, but it is available out in the foyer if you want to get it. And if you're online, you can go to uh, highlandchurch.org slash Rolodex, and you can download it there and pick it up. Um, But I think it would be a trap if we began to look at these relationships around in terms of what does it mean for me? Because sometimes the best relationships that you're going to have are not the ones where you get something out of it, but where you pour yourself into someone else. And so I want to tell, start by telling you two stories. One I know is true, the other might be true. And I want them both to kind of serve as parables, that is, uh, simple stories that reveal, that point to a deeper and more meaningful truth. I want to tell you about the story of Damascus Steel. And in the time, medieval era, there was one place in the world, there was only one place in the world where you could get Damascus steel. It was outside of, uh, inside of Syria. And nobody really knew at the time what made the steel that came out of that city so much better than everywhere else, but it was undeniable that it was. It was a, a stronger steel that could even break the swords of, of other people, and it was beautiful. It had this, it looked like water. And so every king of every nation wanted to have that steel for their army and particularly for their own sword. And they weren't sure if it was the process by which they crafted the swords. They weren't sure if it was something about the ore itself or just Damascus that made that the, most, the best steel in the world. It became the identifying marker of the city. Everybody knew Damascus by its steel, and the city became rich because of that. So why in the world did Damascus forget how to make Damascus steel? 
historians and even archaeologists have tried to figure that out together as they've Maybe the ore changed slightly, that it needed a lot of tungsten in it, and, or the coke had a different quality, and so they couldn't make it the same way anymore. It could be that the, the trade routes got interrupted, and so they could no longer get the supplies that they needed exactly, or when the British came in and invaded, they just quit making it all together out of, out of fear. And those might be all good answers and, and probably true, but I think the saddest exclamation is that they just forgot to teach it. Someone forgot to teach how to do this process to someone else, and they died without sharing that information, and it was lost forever. Even in the 21st century, uh, metallurgists try to create Damascus steel exactly as it is, and they can look at it with a, a molecular microscope, and they still can't exactly create it. It's lost. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. Story number two. In India, the elephants move in herds. And when those herds come up across a river, most, Indi most Indian elephants weighing around two tons have no trouble fording rivers, even if they're large. Except for the older elephants and the younger ones. And so what will happen when a herd comes to cross a river is the healthy elephants will go across like normal and then until they hear the, the cry of the baby elephants because it's afraid, because it knows it might get washed away. And the elephants that have already crossed to the other side will turn around and go back into the stream and stand in a line so that the weaker elephants can cross through. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so grateful to be gathered together in your midst, in your presence. Father, whether we're in our homes around the world or here in this building, uh, it's a joy and an honor to celebrate your son Jesus and remember him in communion, to praise you as the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe, Father, to experience the presence of your Holy Spirit in one another. And now, as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I may speak your truth to these whom you love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to think today about the role of protege. And I think most of us at some point in our lives try to evaluate whether our lives have been worth anything at all whether we've made a difference in this world or whether we've created something, whether we've accumulated wealth, we're all going to spend some time asking that question. But the, the thing I want to ask you today is have you considered that your Sistine Chapel, your legacy that you will leave the world after you die, is not a place or a project, but a person? Perhaps the most meaningful thing that you will ever do in your entire life is to pour yourself into someone else. And so I want us to think about this in terms of Christianity for just a minute. Have you ever thought about what are the metrics for success in Christianity? I mean, how do we judge who is the greatest of all time in the disciples of Jesus? I mean, seriously, was, was Thomas Aquinas more spiritual than Francis of Assisi? Is Billy Graham better for the kingdom than Dorothy Day? The hard thing about this is that spirituality at its best, is dangerous to evaluate. 
But Jesus offers a way. Jesus says, we judge a tree by its fruit. Jesus doesn't say you judge a tree by how beautiful it is or how big it is or how tall it is, by the quality of the content of its leaves. You judge a tree by its ability to reproduce, to create fruit. And so maybe one of the ways that we can begin to attempt to navigate the dangerous road of spiritual evaluation is by looking for a healthy thing that is producing other healthy things. It's not enough for you to, be, to do well enough on your own. Perhaps one of the most anti-Christian, anti-gospel uh, philosophers of the 20th century was Ayn Rand. Now, you probably encountered some of her work. She wrote a lot of fiction to kind of talk about her philosophical perspective, uh, maybe in high school or in, or in early college. And one of her most famous books is a book called Atlas Shrugged. And throughout the book, um, it's a, there's a question that keeps reappearing, and the question is, who is John Galt? Well, John Galt is this, this character that is able to do everything by themselves. And she kind of reveals the philosophy that she's trying to teach the world. Basically, Ian's view is that the mind is the place where things are created, and your mind is the only thing that is completely your own. And so your ability to create ideas and then carry those ideas out into real life, that's yours. That's your property. It may be the only thing that you own, but it's absolutely completely yours. And so anything that you create with your mind, if you can dream it or create it and then carry it out in reality, that's your property. And what Ian does is, is push to the very extreme the idea of self-sufficiency, that you can do it by yourself because you have your own mind. But it doesn't take very long thinking and reflecting on the world to realize how naive that really is. I think it was Albert Einstein that said, if you want to build an apple pie from scratch, you must first create the universe. None of us are where we are by ourselves on our own. All of us have been the benefit of a system that has poured into us in some level or another, mentors that have loved us, parents that have shaped us, a society and a culture that has given us the opportunity. Most of us got to here at this building because we drove on roads that we didn't build. And so I want us to think about what it means to invest in a protege. There's a quote that's attributed to Confucius that's wrong, but it goes like this. If your plan is for one year, plant rice. If your plan is for 10 years, plant a tree. If your plan is for 100 years, educate children. Except that's not exactly what the original quote said. Um, here's the original. The best investment for one year is to grow grains. The best investment for 10 years is to grow trees. And the best investment for a lifetime is to educate children. What you gain for one year's growth will be grains. What you gain from 10 years' growth will be trees. And what you gain from 100 years' growth are people. Highland is getting pretty close to being 100 years old. Because someone at some point decided that it was the call of their life 
to invest in people. And I wonder if we have the same 100-year vision. The backbone of any organization that stretches the length of time is, of its existence uh, is, is people. And if you want to break the spine of an intergenerational community like a church, then all you have to do is fail for one generation to engage in seeking and curating the protege relationship. And this is part about what we're, t- what we're talking about when we talk about generational generosity. That's the problem that we experience when we encounter Judges chapter 2. It's a failure to, uh, tr- to train leaders. It's a failure to reproduce. Moses produces Joshua. Joshua produces no one. And in verse 10 of Judges uh, 2, it says, After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, the generation of Joshua. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. The refrain in the judges that you hear in that book is, at their time, at that time, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, to Ayn Rand and to John Galt, that sounds like an amazing utopia because everyone just does what they think they seem to do. But actually, as you read the book of Judges, you realize that the fact that there is no leadership, that no one's remembering the story of Israel, there's no one telling about what Moses did, what God did, what Joshua did, they lose their way. There is serious danger in non-reproducing leadership. I want to tell you about my favorite place in the world. I may have told this story before. If I did, I don't care. I'm telling it again. Uh, My favorite place in the world is Zion National Park in Utah. And Natalie and I had a chance to go there and, and we went for a visit, and we signed up for a, a hike with a guided tour with a ranger. And it was early in the morning. We were the only ones that showed up. And, and for me, the kind of geek that I am, that was amazing. Because, I mean, I got the undivided attention of this ranger for two hours. And I could just ask him any question I wanted. And, and we were hiking along the edge of the canyon, and we went up to this spot, and the ranger stopped for us all to catch our breath. And he looks down, and he, and he points to the valley, Zion Valley. And he says, what do you see down there? And I looked down there, and I saw a bunch of trees. And he said, yeah, those are cottonwood trees. Did you know that each of those trees, there were probably about 150 of those trees, each of those trees takes 10,000 gallons of water a day. And that blew my mind. There's a little creek stream that runs through Zion Valley. I couldn't imagine all of that water that those trees need to produce. He says, but there's a problem. Do you see what it is? And I looked, and I looked. I couldn't figure it out. All I saw were a bunch of healthy trees. He says, there's no saplings. There's no young trees. There's not a tree in that valley that's less than 50 years old. He says, in 125 years, all of those trees will be gone. You can imagine with me that elephant story about the elephants crossing the stream in India. If there had been some sort of rescued elephant that had grew up in a zoo that wasn't trained or taught by the, the, the herd, If that elephant went to cross the stream, they would forget how to protect the younger calves as they crossed the water. In a great book that Richard Rohr wrote called Falling Upward, he says that the first half of life is spent uh, building our sense of identity, our importance, and our security. And, And that's what he would call the false self. It's what Freud might call the ego self. But in the second half of life, the ego still has a place 
but it's now in service of the true self or soul. It's your inner and inherent identity. Your ego is the container that holds you all together. And so now its strength is an advantage. But it's in the second half of life that we discover it is no longer sufficient to find meaning in being successful or healthy. We need a deeper source of purpose. Timothy's are essential in the kingdom. Paul and Timothy had this deep and intimate relationship. They, they shared their work of spreading the gospel around the world. And although no one ever gives him credit for it, Timothy co-authored five of Paul's letters. He was the recipient of two. He was personally involved in over half of Paul's work. And Scripture doesn't record who Timothy's biological father was, but it's clear that Paul loves Timothy like a son. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered and when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him soon as I see how things go with me. Timothy knows Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul writes, You, however, know all things about my teaching, about my way of life, about my purpose, about my faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, my sufferings. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is what happened in that shared history that caused him to be able to say that? You know, but Timothy isn't the only Timothy for Paul. There's also Titus and Epaphroditus and Erastus, Epaphras, Silas, Luke, John, Mark, and others. Paul taught them all, invested in them all, gave each one different assignments according to their gifts. And wherever they went, Paul's spirit and guidance with, with, went with them. Timothy's are essential in the kingdom, and Timothy's learn from osmosis. You gotta spend time together. I have now divided my life into two phases. There is uh, before kids and after kids, or when we took vacations for ourselves, and now we don't. Um, but while before kids, we were in Arkansas for a while, and uh, I, I noticed something that Natalie would do. Natalie adopted two of the the kids in the youth group. Their names were Aaron and Katie, and, and each of them kind of had some, some special needs and some um, social kind of growth development to do. And, and Natalie would pick them up every morning and, and bring them to church, and then they would sit in church together and, and go to class, and then we would all go and get something to eat, and then she'd take them home. And much to my chagrin, the most formative moment for Aaron and Katie was not the sermon. It was the car rides. When Natalie would ask them how they're doing and how their week was and what's going on at their house. The most formative times were those meals where she would pour into them and, and give them wisdom in, in subtle ways and tell them stories so that they could kind of align themselves to understand what God's doing in this world. And the most powerful I noticed, moments I noticed in the lives of Aaron and Katie were when they would begin to mimic Natalie and the things she said and the way that she treated others. Timothy's learn from osmosis. You have to spend time together. In just a couple of weeks, uh, David Sessions is going to preach on 
Elijah and Elisha and, and their relationship. And so he's going to touch on that more fully. I just want to kind of tell you one story. It's, it's at the end of Elijah's life. And Elisha's following him, and everybody knows he's going to die. The prophets that are around them know they're going to die, and they keep telling Elisha, you know Elijah's going to die, right? And he's like, yeah, I know. Be quiet. Don't tell me any more about that. And, and Elijah keeps, keeps trying to send Elisha away. He says, I'm going here, but you don't go. And Elisha won't let him leave. He keeps following after Elijah. And it comes to the, the last moment in Elijah's life, probably the last miracle that Elijah performs. He, he rolls up his cloak, and he slaps the water of the Jordan. And just like the Israelites crossing, he is able to walk through on dry land. The waters part for him. And then in a beautiful, one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, Elijah is, is carried up away to heaven. Elisha is there to witness it. And Elisha has to cross the river. Do you know how he does it? He performs a miracle. He rolls up Elijah's cloak and slaps the water. And just like his mentor, he is able to cross. Timothys are indispensable in our kingdom, essential to the kingdom. Timothys learn from osmosis, and Timothys need to be blessed and empowered. It's, it's the story of Ruth and Naomi, because sometimes your protege picks you. You don't get to choose. You know, Ruth said to Naomi, where you go, I'm going to go, and your people are going to be my people. I don't care what happens to you. I'm going to be by your side. And there's just nothing you can do about that. But, you know, research shows that when the, when the protege picks their sponsor, it actually turns out to be the most fruitful relationship for both sides. And so Ruth and Naomi, they go back to Naomi's homeland, to Bethlehem. They're starving, and, and, and Naomi figures out a way to help Ruth get some food. And she blesses Ruth in her efforts. She gives good advice and wisdom. She empowers Ruth. Naomi knows what to do and, gives, and helps Ruth through the course of her and Boaz's relationship. And there's a holy dissonance in the relationship with uh, protege. A few years ago, it became really popular to make mashups. Uh, in music, is where you take kind of two songs that don't belong together and you put them together and it's really easy in rock music because there's only three chords anyway. Basically, you can take a Taylor Swift song and a Nine Inch Nails song and you can put them together. You can take a Beatles song and a Jay-Z song and you can put them together. And you even see this happening in worship music now where, where artists will take an old hymn with beautiful language with a deep and theological heritage and bring it in and, and add an electric guitar and a new chorus and, and what we need to realize is that, that the Timothys are going to do it differently than you might have. They may, it may sound a little bit different. They may change the beat up considerably. And there's going to be a little bit of dissonance as you see them do something that's in the spirit, but not quite the same way you would do it. And so in that moment, bless them and empower them. Every great teacher or leader in the world has been a Timothy. Alexander the Great had Aristotle. Paul had Gamaliel. Jesus even had his cousin, John. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, he tells the story about Canadian hockey players. And this is a great chapter to read in his story. And basically, he looked at the pro-level Canadian hockey players, and they noticed this kind of weird anomaly that most of them are born in January or February or March. 
which is kind of weird. Why would that be? Well, they went down to the Peewee League of Canadian Hockey the very first time that they put skates on kids and they, they put them out on the ice. And they noticed that the cutoff date for when you could start was January 1st. So if you were born January 1st that year, you got to go on the ice with that team. If you were born on December 31st of that same year, you were also on that team, which meant the kid born in January, 30, January 1st had 364 days advantage over the other kid, which when you're four or five years old is a big piece of your life. And because they were just that much more developmentally ready, they just understood their bodies that much more, their mental game was that much better, they did better. This is also true, by the way, in European soccer leagues. It's true about school and math. Um, Kids that are born right about the cutoff stage of when they start preschool tend to go to college more often than kids that aren't. And so these these hockey players, with the good luck of being born in the right month, tend to be the all-stars in the Acadian equivalent of the Pee Wee Leagues. They get more attention. They They play more time during games, and they get the best coaches They get to go to the extra camp, the all-star camp, where they get even more attention. And Gladwell notes this simple explanation. The best are the best because of the month in which they were born. But that isn't quite right. The best are the best because someone made them a Timothy. Investing in a Timothy is investing in the future. It's investing in the kingdom. And it's pretty rare right now that we have that long-term view. But we need someone thinking about what's our 100-year strategy. We need somebody thinking about that for Highland. And we need somebody thinking about that for the kingdom. So who are the people you are investing into? The obvious answer is probably your children. But I think Natalie proved that you don't even have to have kids to find a couple of Timothys. All it costs you is some picking them up before church and spending six bucks on them for lunch. If the limit of our vision is our own children, then we are not fulfilling the story that God has called us into. Whether they are ours by blood or ours by the blood of Christ, find somebody. Find somebody to pour yourself into. Because I'm pretty sure the best thing that you will ever do with your life is not a business. It's not a career. It's not a piece of work or art. I'm pretty sure it's a person. So this week, may you be filled with the power of Christ. May the Spirit go before you and go in peace.